0: any Lion King fans in here? One of my favorites, the Disney classic. I say classic. It might be too new to call it a classic. I don't know. It's like 25 years old, something like that, right? Uh, at any rate, so Lion King, of course, is the story of this young lion prince, right, who's the heir to the throne. His name is Simba. And, uh, and terrible things happen in his childhood, and he's got this evil uncle that convinces him that he's had his father killed. It's all really, it gets complicated. But Simba runs away, right, in fear for what's going to happen and in shame of what he thinks he's done. He runs away from home, and he runs into this meerkat and a, a, a warthog who are kind of living this vagrant, wandering kind of a lifestyle. And, uh, and so uh, he adopts their lifestyle, becomes buddies with them, sh- totally sheds the, the past and any notion of, uh, of the, the, the calling of the throne and becoming a king and years later, right, we see him grow up, and now he's an older, you know, young adult lion, I suppose. And uh, he's confronted yet again with the, the the dreadful reality of life back home, right? So his uncle, his evil uncle, has taken charge, and he's sort of just ruined the place. And And so he finds out what's going on there, and he comes face-to-face face with that reality of, of of his calling, that reality of, like, I'm, I'm supposed to be there. This is my job to to sort of take care of people and to, to make things better, and, and yet I, I've run away. And Timon, the little meerkat, is just stunned and incredulous that, that he's found out that his friend, this wandering lion, is actually a king. And, and so he, he, sa- he says, you're a king? And you never told us? And, uh, and Simba says, look, I'm still the same guy. Now, if you guys remember, I could even quote it with me. Timon says, yeah, but with power, Right? This is different. Like, this changes things. Like To know the power that you have that is inherent to who you are and to the, the role that you've been given, this is a big deal. Yeah, you're the same guy, but man, you've got power available uh, to you. In Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21, uh, Paul reports uh, a prayer. Uh, I say reports the prayer because he's kind of informing them of the ways that he prays for, uh, for them. But in the course of doing that, it really becomes a kind of a written prayer itself. Uh, And it's it's a prayer that he seemed to have wanted to begin back in verse 1 of chapter 3, for this reason, I, Paul. And then he kind of goes on this digression that we looked at last week from verses 2 to 13. Um, where he has been, he was tracing the progression of the mystery of Christ and its revelation to uh, himself and then to all the apostles and then to all the church and then ultimately to the cosmic spiritual powers in the heavenly places. And now he returns to the thought that he introduced in verse 1. For this reason, and so verse 14 begins that very same way, for this reason I bow my knees. And he goes on into this prayer. And the prayer is largely about power. It's largely about resources of power that these Christian readers have available to them that, you know, if if we're not careful, if we're not careful, it may go unnoticed and unused. So the Lord wants us to see in these verses something like, yes, you're still the same guy, but with power. There's power available to you through the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Let me read for us these verses, chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and then we'll walk through them together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, open our eyes, enlarge our hearts, help us to see understand and believe the riches you have for us in Jesus Christ, and that you want us to learn about from these verses. In Christ's name. Amen. So Paul prays for his Christian readers, by extension, as it's been handed down to us. These words inspired by the Holy Spirit are for us. So we could say these, this prayer is really a prayer for all Christians, for all of God's people. He prays for his readers in verses 16 through 19, and then he Praise is God in verses 20 and 21. So a prayer and a doxology, just a statement of praise. So that's what these verses really consist of. Three prayer requests in the text. We'll walk through this one at a time. But the three prayer requests are that we would be strengthened by the Spirit, that we would know the love of Christ, and that we would be filled with the fullness of God. The couple of verses leading into the actual request, he says, for this reason, again, the, the reason being all the, the truth that he's just expounded back in chapter two about the incredible salvation by grace through faith that has come to spiritually dead people who have now been made alive with Christ. And then there in verses uh, 11 through um, 22, they're having been united together, Jew and Gentile across every racial and, uh, and ethnic and social and religious barrier. United in Christ into this one body, this one people, the one new man that Christ has created for himself for this reason. So with all of this in view, with, with the gospel of salvation by grace through faith and the, the creation of the church, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, which is an expression for prayer. Right? It's a posture of prayer. I don't know how often we actually physically bow when we pray, actually kneel. There's certainly uh, traditions within Christianity that even corporately do that. Even when we come to pray together, there'd be a, a sort of everybody kneels down sort of thing. And then there, there's a physical posture of humility and of, of, of respect and reverence to God that comes along with that posture. So he doesn't just say, I pray. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. But that's what he's, what he's conveying, is that he, in this humble posture before God, goes to the Father on behalf of his uh, readers. And this phrase in verse 15, from whom, speaking of the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, it's kind of an unusual phrase, an unusual idea. I think it communicates something like the source of all life and being. Something like we read in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being, right? From him, Him, his hand comes life and breath and everything else. And so, uh, as he, as he, he says, I'm praying to the Father, who himself is the source of all life. And it could be that even in thinking of every family or the families of the earth, he's kind of hearkening back to the, the Jew and Gentile distinction and the call to Abraham, the promise to Abraham that through him, every family of the earth would be blessed. So that it, it could be a sort of a, one of the, this inclusive idea of all people's uh, uh, of the world uh, from among those peoples anybody who trusts in Christ has been uh, you know uh, adopted into this family this, this church family so it could be an idea like that so I'm praying to the Father who is the source of the life and salvation and, and being of every sort of ethnic group every family group alright uh, in Christ so he's just placing God the Father in this very high exalted place so we know this is who we're talking to Talking to God the Father. And so then the first thing he prays is that they would be strengthened by the Spirit. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice four things about this request. Number one, it's, it's a passive verb. He prays that they would be Strengthened. It's not something we do ourselves. It's something that God must grant, right? That God may grant you to be strengthened. He doesn't say get strong in the spirit, right? He says that you would be strengthened by the spirit. The strength comes from somewhere else. The strength comes from another person namely the spirit of God who indwells the believer. And so he prays that the Christian would be, by God's grace and his work within him, strengthened by the spirit uh, in his inner being. So, the first thing to notice is that this is the work of God. He has to do it, which is why he prays for it. If it's something you can do on your own, you don't need to pray for it, right? This is something we cannot do. God must do this, that we might be strengthened. Second thing to notice this spiritual strength is to be supplied according to the riches of his glory. That's the very first phrase that he used there in verse uh, 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. In other words, the source of the spiritual power is limitless, right? The, he, God's glory is infinite. There's a, you can't measure the glory of God, right? It, there's no start and end point to the glory of God. It is an infinite uh, a resource, an infinite treasure. And so as God's glory is infinite, so is the, the resource of strength that could be supplied by God uh, for his, from his spirit. So from these infinite riches, we may draw strength from his spirit. Third thing to notice is that the strength being supplied comes directly from the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God in the life of of the believer. He says he's praying that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So there's a reality. There is a there is a theological and actual spiritual reality that the spirit of God is indwelling you. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, repented of your sins and turned to him as savior, the spirit is there. He lives in you. That is a reality. And so he prays that the spirit who is in you Would grant the strength. Would would strengthen your inner being, and that's an interesting thought because you might not you might not feel him. You know what I mean? He's there. But you might not feel like he's there sometimes. You know, you don't don't feel in there in the same way that, like, you feel, you know, a big meal that you just ate. Like, I can feel that food sitting in my stomach. I don't feel the Holy Spirit, like, physically in my body in some way, right? So you can tell, necessarily, that he's there. But we accept by faith that God's Spirit dwells within us, and he's offering resources of strength and power that are not innate to us. Strength and power that we don't have on our own. We can only draw from them because the spirit of God lives within us. And so the strength is supplied through the spirit in our inner being. And then the final uh, thing I want you to notice about this request is that that phrase, his spirit in your inner being, is a, a parallel statement with Christ in your heart through faith. Right? In verse 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I think he puts those phrases together, that you'd be strengthened uh, through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. I think those, those phrases are closely related to each other. And it's stated as kind of a conditional phrase, right? I'm praying that you would be strengthened by the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith, as though if you weren't receiving strength in the Spirit, Christ wouldn't. Dwell in your hearts. Well, we we know that Christ dwells in the heart of a believer uh, from the the time of conversion, and so it seems that Paul is is conveying a slightly different idea here. Um, Benjamin Merkel uh, says that it refers to quote living under the indwelling influence and continual presence of Christ. So it's not the theological sort of transactional reality of Christ in your heart when you believe; it's an ongoing sort of experience of the presence of Christ and the influence of Christ in our lives, over our minds, over our hearts, over our wills, etc. And so he's praying that we would be strengthened with the Spirit, and thus, by that strengthening, we would experience the ongoing presence and influence of Christ in our lives. In other words, there's a way to live your life, even as a professing Christian, that is so disconnected from the Holy Spirit as the, the source of spiritual power, that it's as though Christ is not really living within you. That's stating the same truth in a negative way. If if we don't tap into the resources of power available to us through the Spirit who indwells us, it's as though Christ isn't really in us. We're, we're living like it's not a reality. We're living like that's not really there. And so Paul prays that God would grant believers such spiritual strength. Through the presence of the Spirit, that we would have the continual, ongoing influence of Jesus Christ undergirding all that we do. So this first request is simply this, that God, by his Spirit indwelling, would strengthen believers with spiritual strength. Do you ever feel spiritually tired? Sort of just sluggish? Do you ever struggle to find motivation to read God's Word? to be faithful in prayer, to consistently fight against sin? Do you feel as though you'll never live up to God's calling in your life because it's too hard or it's too intimidating or it's even just unclear? I don't know what God wants me to do and I don't have the energy to find out and it just all feels so sort of intimidating and, and, and hopeless. Friend, Paul's prayer here is for you. If that's the way that you feel, I think we all do at times, that that's the way that you feel this prayer is for you. Plead with God that he might grant you this kind of spiritual strength. Ask him for grace to grow, to look to him with expectation to answer your request. He knows that our strength is failing, that our personal resources are limited, but in Christ, he freely offers strength from his spirit. According to what? The riches of his glory that we might find in him all the strength that we need. So the first thing he prays is that we would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner being. So spiritual strength that God might grant this to us. The second prayer is that we would know the love of Christ. That we would know. The love of Christ. Look at verses 17 through 19, kind of the middle of verse 17. That you, I think this is, again, that signals the next request. He's prayed that God would grant you to be strengthened. And now he's praying that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, this request builds on the first one. And you can see a connection there, right? Paul has prayed that believers would be strengthened in the inner being by the Holy Spirit. And now he prays that they would have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. So there's a connection here between Christ's love and the Spirit's strength. It it takes the strength of the Spirit for us to even perceive and understand the love of Christ. And he wants us to experience the love of Christ in a deeper way. Look at that phrase, being rooted and grounded in love. Not not in our love for each other, not even in our love for Christ, but his love for us. Being rooted and grounded in his love. And indeed, that's true of all believers, everyone who's trusted in Christ for salvation. We have become rooted, grounded, established in the love of Christ. So having had our lives fundamentally and radically changed by the love of Jesus, especially displayed on the cross, we may then and only then be prepared to go on in our discipleship journey to come to an ever-deepening understanding and experience of Christ's love. So Paul prays for two specific things related to the knowledge of Christ's love here. He prays first that we would comprehend Christ's love. That you would have the strength that the Spirit has supplied you to comprehend Christ's love. And that word means to lay hold of with the mind. It it, it is an an understanding. It's to, to see, perceive, and understand something of the character and the nature and the fullness of this love that we would grow in our knowledge and appreciation of his love and all its vast dimensions. And he gives us this, the height and length and breadth and depth. I think I got those out of order. But he's just, if you were to look in every direction, as far up, as far that way, as far this way, as far down as you could see, like the love of Christ is so vast and immense. And so we have this, this journey ahead of us of, of coming to, to know it, to see it, to understand it in some deeper way. And the more we come to know him, the more we consider what he did in his incarnation by lowering himself to become a human being and to die a sinner's death on a a cross, not for his wrongdoing, of which there were none, but for ours, the more we come to just marvel at and be amazed at the fullness and the vastness of the love of Jesus Christ. So, So he wants us to comprehend, to understand it. And the second thing he prays is that we would know. Christ's love. And that doesn't sound all that different to our ears. It sounds pretty similar. But it's not the same word. It's not the same Greek word behind it. In fact, the word used here for to know the love of Christ was a Jewish idiom for marital intimacy. Right? So this is a deep connectedness, a personal experiential knowledge, a relational knowledge that he has in mind here. So not just that we would merely understand as a concept Jesus has a lot of love, but that we would experience it as personally directed to to us. He doesn't want you to merely be cognitively aware that Jesus is a loving person, but intimately familiar with the reality that Jesus loves you personally. I think that's what he's getting at here. He wants us, along with all the saints, along with the church, there's community involved there. We need each other to even help one another see this and experience this. He wants us to to come to understand something about the depth and the vastness of Christ's love. And more than that, he wants us to, to experience it, to receive it, to know at a personal, relational level, Jesus loves me. You know, it's not insignificant that probably the first song that most Christian parents teach their kids is what? Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. This is the most profound reality, really, in all of Scripture. That Jesus loves me. He loves me. There's a sense in which the central experience of Christian discipleship is growing in our awareness Of the love of Jesus Christ. There's just more of Christ's love to experience and to understand and to appropriate for ourselves. And maybe there's somebody in the room today who just desperately needs to hear this simple reminder. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And it's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's such an interesting kind of paradox here that he says, I'm praying that you, would, uh, that you would come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Which is not to say, like, it's pointless to try. Don't even think of. Don't even bother because you'll never, you'll never understand it. It's just saying this is, you won't get to the bottom of it. You're not going to run out of Christ's love. It's not like I'm going to think about it enough or draw from it enough or experience it enough that it's going to run out. Okay, now I totally get it. Now I understand everything there is to know about Christ. I've experienced all the experience of his love. I'm going to go see what else there is out there. There is always more. It surpasses knowledge. You can study it, search it, meditate on it, marvel at it, and you'll never be able to fully grasp just how immense is the love of Jesus Christ for you. Yes, for you. Jesus loves you. Praise God. Despite you. Despite me, he loves us. He sees all that there is to see. All the stuff that we kind of hide and keep hidden from each other because we think, I don't think people would love me if they see all there is to see or they know everything that's in my mind and my heart. Jesus sees all that. And he loves you. So Paul prays that his readers would come to know and experience the love of Jesus Christ in a fuller way. the final thing he prays for is that they would be filled with the fullness of God, which itself is such an interesting phrase. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And just as the second request built on the first, right, as uh, he prayed for us to be strengthened with with power by the Spirit and by that power that we would come to, to know and experience the love of Christ in a deeper way, so this one builds on The last one, Paul prayed that uh, we would uh, have the strength to experience and know the love of Christ. And now he prays that having seen and comprehended something of the depth of Christ's love, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. You can see uh, the, the, the close connection there. In verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What's the result of that? Or the the next sort of request there? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's connected to it. And the fullness of God, I think, is a phrase indicating all that God is. It's hard to to get your mind around mind it's hard to find language to articulate it. Uh, it, it it's, it's the summary of all of his divine attributes and his moral perfections. When you consider the, the fullness of God, the vastness of God, the, that infinite riches of his glory that we talked about earlier, this is the, the fullness of God. And, and, and Paul is praying that Christians would be filled with the fullness of God. Which sort of sounds like, I don't think we can handle it. Right? We don't have the capacity for that. If God were to fill us with all the fullness of God, I think we'd just sort of burst. Like we can't contain all of God in ourselves. And indeed, there is a, a glorious coming age where we, he will increase our capacity to know and see and experience the fullness of God. But in this life, in this journey of discipleship, in this broken world, we are on this uh, adventure of growing in our knowledge of God and our experience of his fullness within us. So, so I think to be filled with the fullness of God must be something like attaining spiritual maturity, right? There's, there's a point at which, uh, or there, there's a goal in Christian life, right? Of, of moving toward Christ-likeness, right? We read in Romans 8 that we've been uh, called and predestined to be conformed to the image of, of his son. So Christ likeness, Christ conformity is the, the road we're on. That, that's what we're after. We'll never get there this side of heaven perfectly, but we're always on that journey. And so, um, and, and we ourselves, of course, will never be like God. Even experiencing the fullness of God is not to say that we then take on all of his attributes and become like him. That, that's not what we mean. But it, it, it's that God's very character. And his moral perfections would come increasingly to define who we are and to be reflected in the way that we live. One commentator says, in essence, that Paul is praying that they may be all that God wants them to be. That's an interesting way to, to say it. So to be filled with the fullness of God is to, is to grow into the full measure of what God intends for his people to be and to experience in their lives. Relationship to him and the reflection of him in the world. And, and I also think this request is something of a, a summary of the previous two, or perhaps the climax of those two, right? As a Christian receives strength in his inner being through the Holy Spirit and is thereby given a growing, uh, deepening knowledge and experience of the vast love of Christ for him, the outworking of that will be a Christian who experiences God himself in greater measure. And whose life is a reflection of God's fullness. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. That is a full and mysterious phrase. But may we lean into it and pursue it and, and plead with God do this in us, grow us in this. Well, let me provide two points of application here, specifically about uh, how I think these verses should impact our prayers, because this is a prayer. So I think it helps, it's instructive for us to think about and consider our own prayer lives in light of prayers like this that we have in in the Bible. So I'm going to give you two points of application about prayer, and then we'll conclude by looking briefly at the, the doxology, that statement of praise in verses 20 and 21. So two things about prayer. Number one, these verses should cause us to prioritize prayer for one another. To prioritize prayer for one another. I think it's interesting that Paul's ecclesiology, that is his his understanding and doctrine of the church as this new united spiritual community that's together as one body in Christ, his ecclesiology leads him to prayer. That's what he just came from, right? Expounding how Christ has torn down the wall of hostility and created in himself the one new man, and therefore I bow my knees before the Father and pray, right? It's his understanding of who we are as Christ's church, as God's people, that leads him to prayer for other Christians. As he considers the amazing work of God in establishing the church as a unified people composed of Jews and Gentiles redeemed through Christ's cross, he's immediately led to earnest prayer. For their sake. And we ought to be similarly compelled to bow our knees before the Father on behalf of our fellow saints and church members. Fellow saints could be very broad. Any other Christians you know, any other churches that you know, sometimes we pray for other local churches by name, even when we're together. We want God to grow His church, and not just ours, right? We want God to to strengthen His church in every form and in every place. But we also ought to be committed to praying for each other in this local body. I think of the words of Samuel in his sort of farewell address to the people in 1 Samuel chapter 12. He said, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I think it would be good if we had that sense of responsibility and commitment. Before God, we owe our prayers for other Christians within our church, other members of our church. Use your member directory for this purpose. We haven't produced one very recently, so, and we've had some changes to it, so we can, we'll get you an updated one soon. But if you have a member directory, this is a great way to use it. Uh, if you get one from us soon, this is a great way to use it. Go through, name by name, and pray for people in your church. One member a day, one, two members a week, however you want to do it. But go through the directory and pray for each person in our church. Along these lines, that God would work in their lives in these ways. So we should prioritize prayer for one another. And the second thing, application to make here, is, is that these verses ought to shape our prayers for one another. Right? They, they instruct and inform how we should pray. I don't know if you, you've been in, uh, in, in prayer meetings uh, that begin to, the, the way that uh, I always heard it said was, was that a prayer meeting can sometimes sound like an organ recital. You know, my Aunt Susie's uh, kidney is bad, or my sister's heart is having problems, or I've got a spot on my lung, right? So we're, we're, we're reciting our various bodily organ problems to one another, and so the, the prayer of the church for one another uh, can be very sort of focused and almost limited to f- various physical ailments, It's not wrong to pray for physical ailments. We should. We do. We will. I'm not saying let's stop praying for one another in those ways. We should come alongside one another in prayer for those things. But we should prioritize spiritual prayers for one another. As we look to the way that Paul prays for the people here in the region of Ephesus, we ought to be inspired and motivated and instructed. When we pray for other Christians, we should pray especially for spiritual things. Our deepest desire for our fellow Christians should be for him or her to know and experience the love of Jesus Christ in a fuller way, and our prayers should reflect that desire. If we really want for our fellow Christian to know and experience the love of Christ in a deeper way, then our prayers for that fellow Christian will be along in that direction. God help him or her to see something of your love today, to experience something of your love today that he didn't notice before. So don't just pray that God would rescue them from uncomfortable circumstances. It's not wrong to pray that, and often we we do, and that's fine. But, but pray for him, to, or, and not just to give favorable outcomes and things that we're worried about. I'm worried about how this is going to go. Pray that it goes well. Dear Lord, help that to go well. That's okay to pray. But we should also pray for spiritual growth in the midst of whatever those circumstances are. Pray that uh, your fellow Christian would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Pray that your fellow Christian would grow in her knowledge and experience of Christ's love, even in the midst of that trial, that circumstance. Lord, let him see something of yourself, of your love, of your commitment to him in this. Pray that, uh, that your fellow Christian would grow toward maturity, attaining the fullness of God. We should pray that for one another. Lord, help us to grow, help him or her or them to grow in their maturity and the fullness of God. So I think we ought to have our—we should prioritize prayer for each other, and our prayers for one another should have a spiritual shape and goal, and not merely focus on external things. All right. Well, Paul is asking for big things, right? He's just prayed a, a bold prayer. Unless we think, you know, perhaps he's being too bold. You know, maybe he's just asking too much of God. Maybe God isn't able or inclined to do so much on behalf of Christians. Um, we'll take a look at this chapter's concluding verses, this doxology, the statement of praise, verses 20 and 21. Now to him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. If Paul is praying for Christians to grow in regard to these realities, then he must believe that God might just answer his prayer and that his readers will indeed come to experience this spiritual power in a fuller way. We need to ask God to shake loose the sort of settled crust of unbelief and of sort of status quo prayers in our own lives. And, and, and to convince us, God, convince us that these spiritual resources are really ours in Christ. There's, there's a reality here of just believing that this is really there and that we really have access to these things. The indwelling presence of God's Spirit with limitless resources of power for spiritual growth and development is something that is available to you as a follower of Jesus. The spiritual strength to see, understand, and experience the love of Christ in greater measure is something that is available to you as a follower of Jesus. The experience of being filled with all the fullness of God growing toward maturity and all that God wants us to be is something that is available to you as a follower of Jesus. And if there's a deficit of faith on your part, if you find it hard to to really believe that those experiences can actually be yours, you know, I've been a Christian for a while and it just seems to be slow going and kind of same old, same old, If you have a hard time believing that you can really grow in these things, then the affirmation of verse 20 speaks directly to that lack of faith. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that you ask or think. Not just he's able. He's abundantly able. He's far more abundantly able. Right? To do more than you've asked about and more than you've even thought was possible. This is the God to whom we pray. This is the God who indwells us by his spirit. This is the power that is at work within you. As he said there in verse 20. May God shame our flat, feeble, faithless prayers. May he stir us into a confident expectation of what he can do. What he will do. What he is doing in us through Christ's resurrection power. You know, at the start of our service, we sang these words together. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he thee. Friend, he has. He has befriended you through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He has made you his friends. He's made us his friends. He's poured out his love on us, poured it into our hearts. May we be led by the Spirit of God today to ponder, to wonder, to imagine, to, to dream of the powerful ways that God may work in our lives and through our witness for the glory of God and the good of his church. These verses call our, uh, our sort of feeble-minded lack of faith on the carpet. do you know who you're praying to? Do you know the God to whom you belong? Do you know the spirit that indwells you and the resurrection power that's at work in you right now? Don't pray feeble prayers. Don't pray faithless prayers. Ask big prayers and trust that God will work. You know, I can't help but wonder, just as a church, I can't help but wonder if God might say to us today, you know, I can do a lot more through Imprint Community Church than you've asked me to do or that you've even thought was possible. I wonder if he might call us to a deeper, bolder, more confident life of, of prayer for his work in and through us, to a more persistent and courageous witness to those around us daily who are under the wrath of God. Might he intend to save from wrath those in our lives whom we simply haven't asked about yet or haven't spoken to? May the Lord convince us of the spiritual power at work within us so that with our eyes open to the greatness and glory of God, we might not shrink back from the size and significance of the task that he's given us. May we be a church in which God is truly glorified in this age and in the one to come. Let me pray.